Good afternoon and welcome to the Narrow Path Radio Broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for an hour each weekday afternoon so that you can call in and raise questions if you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith and we can discuss them on the air, possibly be able to answer them. Uh, if you have a difference of opinion from the host, you don't have to ask a question. You can simply state what that difference of opinion is and we can discuss that. So you're welcome to join us, uh, except with this caveat, right now the lines are full. But if you take this number down, have it ready, and call in a few minutes, usually, you know, five, ten minutes should be enough, a line will no doubt open up, and sometimes more than one. So if you keep trying during the, during the hour, there's a very good chance you'll catch one of the lines open. The number is 844-484-5737. That's... 844-484-5737. And I want to remind you all week long that um, there's going to be a debate this Saturday night. Uh, it's at, uh, from I think it's from 5 to 7, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Pacific Time, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific Time. It'll be streamed. Uh, we do not yet have the link posted where it'll be streamed, but just uh, it will be there. It'll be at our website. We'll also post it at our Facebook page. So uh, if you want to hear that debate, it's between myself and somebody you may have heard here a number of times on the program, Max the Atheist, who calls um, fairly often. And uh, it was he who wanted to have a debate, and I was glad to have it. So we, he set it up, and we'll be doing that this Saturday night. And uh, you may want to be part of that. We'll be debating the question of whether Christianity is true. Uh, I would also have been willing to raise the question of whether God exists, but that would be a separate debate. However, if Christianity proves true, then that also settles the question of whether God exists, because Christianity has its main subtext, that there is a God and that he is involved and he visited us in Christ. And if that's not true, then there may still be a God. But if it is true, there definitely is a God. So anyway, that's this Saturday night. It's a uh, I think it's posted in the announcements at our website, thenarrowpath.com, under the tab that says Announcements. I don't think the link to YouTube is there yet, because I don't think we have it yet, but, if, uh, but it certainly will be there in advance of the debate itself. All right, let's talk to Jimmy in Staten Island, New York. Hi, Jimmy. Welcome. Hey, Steve. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I wanted to make a comment on last night. I think it was the third call about Matthew 7, uh, 23. You know, one of the scariest verses in the Bible. But before mm -hmm. that, I know you're going to have a uh, debate with Max this weekend. And I just wanted to bring up the verse in Hebrews 11.3. Um, if he brings up evolution, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made by things which do appear. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that would be a good verse to explain to him why he doesn't, why right. he believes in if, if we discuss evolution, which is not likely to come up, we're talking about Christianity, oh. since Christianity is about Jesus. Uh, okay. And Jesus, uh, of course, we we do believe that evolution is mistaken, and, and Max does oh, yeah. believe in it. So we could discuss that another time, but that's not what this debate will be about. But okay. uh, what's now? how is this related to the Matthew 7 verse? Oh, it's not. It's totally, totally unrelated. But last oh, night, okay. um, uh, you, he brought up the scariest verse, which I agree, and you agree. Um, I'll just read it quick. Not everyone that saith to me, unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of his Father which is in heaven. 
Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now, in Matthew 25, we have a parallel. Well, let's not go into all that right now. Uh, you, you don't have a question, and you don't disagree with me. So, I mean, it's uh, those are the two main reasons for people to call. Our lines are full of people waiting to get on. So, I appreciate you joining us. Steve, and, uh, Steve, sure we'll Steve, Steve. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I do disagree with you. You went oh, right okay, into works. And, and the reason that he said, I never knew you, is because, not because of their works that they're presenting, they're trying to justify their entering in by their works. And it's not by works, it's by grace. And he never knew them. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. They weren't his sheep. And they follow me and I give to them eternal life. And they shall not I perish. I agree. Well, so last, night, the, who, who, last night you went into we work. Well, Jesus did. Jesus said, who, he that does the will of my Father in heaven. You know, uh, if you think that the judgment does not take works into consideration, you simply haven't read any of the scriptures on the subject. You were just about to read Matthew 25, which tells us that the sheep and the goats are distinguished by what they did and did not do with reference to the poor and the needy and the uh, disenfranchised. And so I was sick and you did uh, you know, visit me. I was naked and you did clothe me. Uh, those are speaking of good works. Those are the very works that James talks about in James chapter 2, where he says faith without works is dead. And he gives the example of a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, you know, and you say be warmed and filled, but you don't give them anything for the body. What does that property say? Even so, faith without works is dead. So James indicates that faith will always produce works. Works are therefore the evidence of faith, and therefore they are the, the evidence brought up in court. You know, when, when, you, uh, when someone goes to court to defend themselves, uh, there has to be evidence either for them or against them or, or both that has to be sorted out. And uh, it's not enough for the person to say, well, I, I, I had these thoughts. I believed a certain way. Um, well, I, I was well-intentioned. No, the, the real question is, what did you do? And, uh, and that will show whether you're guilty or not. And, and the Bible makes it very clear. Uh, your works will show whether you believed or not. Paul said, in Christ, circumcision and uncircumcision don't count for anything. But faith, that works through love. That's Galatians 5, 6. So James and, and Paul both agree. What saves is a faith that works through love, that produces works of love. So James says it. Paul says it. Uh, the whole Bible says it. And in fact, every time the judgment day is mentioned, it is mentioned as a judgment of works. Whether you read Second uh, Corinthians 5.10, where Paul says that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, in which every man will receive the things done in his body. That means his works, the things he did. Uh, in 1 Peter 1.17, Peter says, If you call God your Father, who without uh, respect of person judges every man according to his works, past the time of your uh, sojourning here in fear, he says. Uh, in Revelation, the books are opened and everyone is judged by their works. Jesus in Matthew 25 had people being judged by the works. So, I mean, there's actually nothing in the Bible ever speaks of a judgment that is based on anything other than works. That doesn't mean we're saved by works, but it means if we want to convince anybody, including God, that we are saved, we'd better have the evidence. And that is works. And that's what's brought up in court as evidence for or against us. Hey, I appreciate your call. I need to take another call. No, I need to move along. I appreciate you. 
calling. I know we'll hear from you again because we do from time to time. Uh, Paul from Nampa, Idaho. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Hi, Steve. Hi. Um, first, <laughs> first thing I want to say, thank God for you, because uh, it's not easy these days to uh, find somebody with your unique way of reading the Bible and interpreting that. And um, it's just something that I really appreciate. So uh, my question is, my question is, in Genesis 6-2, sons of God, in your opinion, who are they? The sons of God who saw the daughters of men that they were fair to look upon and took wives of them as many as they chose. In my opinion, uh, I don't think anyone can, uh, and it says children were born to them, it specifically says that. I don't think anyone can uh, reproduce with a human being except another human being. Uh, I mean, obviously God is an exception. He can do anything he wants to, so he could impregnate a woman who's a virgin. But we don't know of any uh, other kind of species of being that can reproduce with uh, human beings. Even even those animals that are genetically closest to us, uh, like the apes, I mean, they're like 97% equivalent to us genetically. Well, they're not close enough to reproduce with our species. And so uh, we can see that there has to be a very, very close match in, in DNA in order for any two parties to, uh, to actually reproduce. Now, these sons of God... I assume we're, we're human sons of God. Now, of course, sons of God can mean other things in different places. I think in Job, chapters 1 and 2, I think the sons of God is a reference there to angels. Uh, although there have been some who would even see that as a reference to human sons, but I think there's some problems with that interpretation. Uh, but see, I, believe they, I believe those are probably angels, but... In all the other places I know, when it's not talking about Jesus as the Son of God, I believe it's talking about human beings as sons of God. It's a very commonplace, both in the Old and the New Testament. Uh, well, I won't say commonplace, but it happens multiple times in the Old and the New Testament that humans who are godly are, uh, are called sons of God. Um, uh, Job is the only book that I know of that would be an exception, and uh, it's an older book. It may use the term differently than all the other later books of the Bible did, but uh, it's not important to prove. All I'm saying is sons of God who married the daughters of men, I believe, were godly men who married women who were not particularly godly. And this uh, broke down the spiritual integrity of the godly line of humans. And, uh, and it led to the corruption in the world that led to the flood. And it's interesting when that corruption came and God announced because of it, he's going to have to send the flood. He didn't say, my spirit will not always strive with these angels. Uh, he says, no, I, I, my spirit will not always strive with man. Now, the problem here is man, uh, not angels. So, in my opinion, the sons of God refers to human beings. Now, if someone says, but what about the Nephilim? Aren't they their offspring? And weren't the Nephilim something different than humans? Well, the Bible doesn't say that they're different than humans. The word Nephilim apparently refers to giant humans, um, but a giant human is still a human, I would say, just like a midget or a dwarf human would be, or pygmies. I mean, there's different sizes of humans, and uh, very big ones. Are st I mean, uh, a draft horse is of the same species as a, as a pygmy horse or a mini miniature horse, uh, but very much bigger 
Uh, likewise, a, a St. Bernard is much bigger than a Chihuahua, but they're the same species. So uh, I don't have any problem believing there have been species or, or within our species, the human race, people of various varieties, just as there are varieties of skin color and other traits. There have been a wide variety of, uh, of different sizes of humans. And so uh, I don't see any reason for the Nephilim to be anything other than human. And more than that, the Nephilim are not even mentioned as being the children of these marriages. It says in Genesis chapter 6 that, you know, uh, there were Nephilim, which usually translated giants. There were Nephilim in the world in those days. And afterward, when the sons of God went into the daughters of men and children were born unto them. Okay, so there were Nephilim in the world in those days, apparently before, and also afterward of these marriages. So if, if the Nephilim were simply a variety of people that were around before and after these marriages, it can hardly be argued that these marriages were necessary to produce them. All right. So that so my I mean, there's other opinions. Some people think the sons of God are angels, but I have a very difficult time believing that angels would have the power to reproduce with human beings. But if they did, they did. I just don't see any evidence of it. Thank you, though. Uh, Randall in Tacoma, Washington. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Yeah, thank you uh, for taking my call. Um, I'm curious about First Timothy 2.12. Uh-huh. Um, where it says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And I just wonder, are women allowed to be pastors, teachers, or elders, or deacons, or is that not allowed? Well, I do. They're certainly allowed to be deacons. There's no question about that, because Paul refers to Phoebe as a deacon in, in Romans 16, 1 and 2, I think it is, or at least verse 1. And, uh, and in First Timothy chapter 3, he even talks about uh, apparently deaconesses, female deacons. But then the word deacon is simply from the Greek word diakonis, which means a servant. It's a nor normal word for a servant. So, yeah, women are allowed to be servants, and men, too, are allowed to be servants. Anyone can be a servant. Um, and, uh, you know, if certain people are appointed specially to be servants of the church, uh, Paul places no distinction on whether they have to be men or women, necessarily. But, um, uh, but, but elders are something different, and, in, and because they are, they're still servants, but they serve in a different capacity. The deacons seemingly served in practical matters, and elders served uh, as spiritual uh, assistants to the church. Um, now, they were assistants. Jesus said, whoever would be chief among you must be the servant and the slave of all. So, it's, you know, they're not, in, they're not bosses. They're not in privileged positions. Uh, they do have to qualify because if you're going to be a, a serving in the capacity that the elders were to serve, you have to have some spiritual maturity and consistency and the ability to teach, he said. So uh, when he says he doesn't let a woman teach or have authority over a man, I don't think he means that a woman can never teach in any situation over a man. After all, Paul's partners in ministry in Ephesus and in Corinth were Priscilla and Aquila, a married couple. And we read specifically of Priscilla and Aquila together, and apparently Priscilla primarily. Uh, correcting and teaching a man named Apollos, who's a, a traveling minister who came through in Acts chapter 18 at the end of the chapter. So, uh, yeah, I don't think Paul had any problem with women teaching men in every situation. But in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, 
he's running up to chapter 3, which is, you know, he's at the end of chapter 2, and then he begins chapter 3. And, of course, Paul didn't divide these into chapters at all. He just one continuous discussion. And uh, right at chapter 3, he's, he's talking about what it takes to be an overseer, which is an elder. Now, and one of the things is the, it must be a husband of one wife, so he's got to be a man. He's got to be the the master of his house so that we can see whether he's a good uh, manager of his house. If he's not, he should not be, uh, you know, trusted to manage the church or lead the church. But these, these uh, roles were not... Um, what, what we think of them today in many cases. Now, deacons might be. It may be that modern deacons in many churches are the same thing, although in some churches, deacons kind of run the church. It depends on the church and the denomination. But um, in the Bible, they didn't have a man who was the, the big leader of the church called the pastor. You never read of any church in the Bible having a pastor like that. Um, in fact, you don't have any reference to any particular church having a pastor. You have the churches have elders, and the elders are commanded by Paul and by Peter in First Peter 5 to pastor, to, that is to shepherd. The word pastor means shepherd. So the elders, uh, who were plural in each church, were commanded to be shepherds or pastors of the church. That is, they, they do the work of pastoral ministry, shepherding the flock. But this is a service they provide. It's not a privilege uh, I mean, a person who is called to it might just count any service of God a privilege, and that would be reasonably true. I'm, I'm not a pastor, but I certainly feel privileged to be able to serve God as opposed to live a meaningless life, uh, which some people are consigned to do, apparently. But I, uh, uh, you know, it is a privilege to serve God in any capacity. But when it comes to being the teacher and guides of the, of, of the, uh, of the congregation, Paul didn't put women in that role. Now, our our churches often are not set up the way that Paul's are, and, and what we call a pastor isn't even the same thing in most cases as what Paul referred to as overseers. But it's the closest thing they had. I believe, I think, I think through the centuries, the church changed in undesirable ways from the time of Paul, so that instead of the teachers and shepherds of the church being servants, it is now thought that the pastor is uh, the, the, the boss. And, and this is partly due to the fact that churches today are corporations. That in order to have a tax exemption in this country, they get a 503, uh, 50C3, uh, you know, corporation status. And the government requires a corporation to have a, like an executive director or CEO or something like that and a board of directors. And of course, uh, in order to have that, the churches have to have somebody who's de designated as the CEO and, and people who are designated as the board of directors operate as a corporation. And in a corporation, of course, these are the guys who make all the decisions, and they are the ones entrusted to do everything, uh, you know, in terms of leadership. Uh, we don't know that any of the elders in New Testament times had all that associated with It doesn't seem like they did, in my opinion. But uh, when it comes to pastors, if a pastor is the same thing as an elder in the Bible, since the Bible doesn't have anyone else who's assigned to be a pastor, um, Paul did not put women in that position. And, uh, you know, if someone finds that objectionable, I'd ask, why? Why would a woman or a man object to that? I'm not a pastor, and I don't object to that. In fact, with my, uh, my, my past marriages, uh, I don't think I'd be qualified to be an elder. I, I would never 
if, if a church asked me to be an elder, I think I'd have to say, I'm, I don't think I qualify. Uh, so what? You don't have to be an elder. You could be something else. To be a Christian, to serve God, you could do any number of things. If, the re- if you're holding out for being a pastor, then that's probably because you think pastor is a, some kind of an enviable position, in which case a person is probably thinking in modern American terms for the pastors like the CEO and the boss like of a corporation. I think. I think a lot of people see it that way, and I don't. Um, so if I were a woman, I would feel the same way because I don't know how to read the Bible any differently. It's, uh, the words are there. Uh, I'm sure some people would say that um, Paul restricted women only because they didn't have the same education that men had, and nowadays women can get the same education as men do. But there's no uh, evidence at all in the Bible that women... Uh, had more or, le- more or less education than the men who were appointed to be elders, uh, or that education had anything to do with their qualification. So I'm thinking that nothing has really changed, essentially, since Paul made these declarations. So as a person who follows the Bible, I don't write the Bible, so I don't make these decisions. Um, but as a person who teaches the Bible, I have to be honest, or else, or else not have any credibility as a teacher. And I'm, some people made that choice. Some people chose not to have credibility, but they'd rather just be popular. But I'd rather have credibility and, let, and people know that uh, I'm not going to say what they want me to say just so that they'll like me better. This is what the Bible, I believe, says. And I've read books by Christians arguing differently from the same passages, but they're always jumping through hoops and trying very hard to please the modern worldly culture uh, and uh, compromising, frankly, in their exegesis of the Scripture. So I'm just not there. So I would say, uh, no, uh, Paul does not, I think, leave room for women to be uh, elders. On the other hand, I don't think Paul was a legalist. I'm not a legalist either. Uh, If we're talking about, well, who should we appoint for elders? Should we appoint these women? I generally would say, no, that's not biblical. But there are situations where perhaps the only Christian, you know, who converts the rest is a woman, like Elizabeth Elliot, who converted the tribe in Ecuador, and uh, you know, she had to teach them. She had to lead them for a while. But she didn't, actually, Elizabeth Elliot, to the day of her death, did not believe in women pastors. But she was a missionary who had to, you know, she, she was doing something that had to be done, filling in an emergency. Uh, I'm, I've been in that same situation, too. I would not be a pastor of a church, but there have been times when a church that was lacking a pastor asked if I'd fill the pulpit. I've done it. Um uh, that's just filling in the emergency. That's not, you know, changing the norms, at least in my my understanding. That is not. All right. I appreciate All right. your Thank call. Thank you so much. I appreciate All it. All right. God bless you, Randall. Uh, let's see here. Rashad from Brooklyn, New York. Welcome. Hey, Steve. Hey. Hey. Um, well, my question today is, uh, is about... Um, the resurrection and most specifically uh, uh resurrected bodies do you do you think it um those those bodies are going to be whatever peak condition we would we would have been in on earth like whatever the, the highest um highest strength level et cetera the athletic level we could have been on been in well i don't i don't believe that god's going to reward um people less or more 
in terms of the quality of body that they get in the resurrection based on how long they lived and how decrepit their body became before they died. I mean, some people die at infancy, some die in, in childhood, some die in their prime, and some die after all their natural life has practically waned out of them. Uh, it would be, to my mind, not very fair, and I don't think God would do it, to say, well, by the time you died, you were decrepit, so your resurrection body is going to be decrepit too. Uh, right, obviously, right. Some, of the, some of the greatest saints have been people whose bodies were pretty mangled up, uh, you know, by the time they died and martyred. Uh, and certainly I don't think he's going to, you know, penalize infants and children who died before they got older and had mature bodies. So, but I don't know. I mean, we're not really given specific information. Just my, my uh, speculation is based on what I understand to be God's plan and God's character. It seems to me that we don't have to worry uh, that we'll live so long that our bodies will be the kind that we wouldn't want to see raised, uh, you know, because they're not very good bodies anymore. And the older I get, the more mine is in that category. Um, so I, I think probably, just like Adam and Eve, I'm sure we're perfect specimens when they were created, that in the new creation, in the direction, our bodies will be... Uh, as, as perfect as human bodies could be, and, and, and more so because they'll be immortal. Right, right. Now, now you just mentioned um, Adam and Eve. Now, do you do you think um, once um, once they sinned, that something changed as far as their bodies are concerned? Uh, I don't know of anything that changed uh, as far as their bodies were concerned. Of course, some people would say, well, they, they suddenly lost their immortality and became physically mortal. But I don't know that they ever had immortality. I think that immortality was offered to them on the condition of eating of the tree of life. But instead, they chose to eat the tree that would disqualify them to eat it. So I, I, think, they, I think they were mortals who were potentially immortal, but they, they didn't... Uh, they didn't accept that potential because they didn't obey. So I don't, I don't know that their bodies changed in any way. They were mortal to begin with, and they remained mortal, and then they died. Now, I need to take a, take a break now. Thank you, Rashad, for your call. You're listening to The Narrow Path. Our website's thenarrowpath.com. I'll be right back. In the series, When Shall These Things Be?, you'll learn that the biblical teaching concerning the rapture, the tribulation, Armageddon, the Antichrist, and the millennium are not necessarily in agreement with the wild sensationalist versions of these doctrines found in popular prophecy teaching and Christian fiction. The lecture series entitled, When Shall These Things Be?, can be downloaded without charge from our website, thenarrowpath.com. Welcome back to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for another half hour taking your calls. If you, are, uh, if you have a question about the Bible right now, we do have some lines open. We didn't uh, when we went on the air a half hour ago, but some lines have opened up, as I predicted. And if you'd like to call, you can occupy those with your questions that you have from the Bible or the Christian faith or your disagreements with the host, if, if you have such the number to call is 844-484-5737. Our next caller today is Chuck from Honolulu, Hawaii. Hi, Chuck. How are you doing? Hi, Steve. Uh, 
Oh, first, I have a question, but first, I wanted to tell you, you a couple of times you mentioned that you were having trouble connecting to the Internet, and I wanted to let you know that you can connect to the Internet through your phone. I Where do. do you get a phone connection? I do, whenever I'm traveling. Oh, you know, Mm-hmm. Oh, 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 oh. Yep. oh okay. but you have to have a phone connection too, and that's not always the case. Not a good one. Yeah. Oh, oh I see. I see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, anyway, the Bible says over and over and over and over and over and over and over that God does not want sacrifice, and in Deuteronomy and a couple of other places it says that human sacrifice is an absolute abomination. But Christians say that there's no salvation without human bloodshed. Now, isn't that a contradiction? No, no. I mean, the, first of all, the Bible never says that God didn't want sacrifice. It does say that that's not primarily what he wanted. Uh, when he said, I, you know, I had, I had no pleasure in, in sacrifices, but that, you know, you would do the will of God. Uh, when David said that, you know, you did not desire sacrifice or else I would give it, but your sac- the sacrifices you desire are, uh, you know, humble and contrite spirit. Uh, I mean, there are times like that when somebody in the Bible will mention that what God really wants is something better than sacrifices. But there's no question when you read the Leviticus that God uh, required sacrifices. And even in uh, and, and even in the Psalms, which, you know, David is one who twice tells us that sacrifice is not so much what God was looking for, but one of the... Uh, Psalms, Psalm 50 comes to mind. There may be others that would have this point. But in Psalm 50, verse 5, God said, Gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And it says, uh, Let the heavens declare his righteousness as the person's righteousness who's, who's made this covenant. Anyway, I, yeah, I, I disagree with your premise that God doesn't want sacrifices. Many times the Bible will use something called a limited negative, where it says, not this, but that. And it really means not only this, but also that. So that we find, for example, in Hosea 6.6, 6, uh, I, I desired mercy rather than simply sacrifice. Uh, it says, I desired mercy and not sacrifice. But any good translation will point out, it means rather than or more than sacrifice. People offered sacrifices because they were required to. By God, by their law, um, but they uh, obviously they, that's not all God wanted. God often said, like in Isaiah chapter one and in Malachi chapter one, both it says that the sacrifices they offered were not at all acceptable to God, because while they offered them, they were still committing foul deeds and doing things that were wicked and uh, oppressing their fellow man, and they had blood on their hands uh, from shedding innocent blood, horrible things. They were doing, and then they're offering their sacrifices. Those those kind of sacrifices stink. Uh, there's twice or three times in Proverbs it says the sacrifice of the wicked man is an abomination to God. In other words, if you're a wicked person but you're pretending to be religious by offering sacrifices, that's an abomination. So, the question of God's attitude towards sacrifices is more nuanced than you are aware. Now, uh, you know, it's not mine to say whether it's appropriate or not for human that is Christ's blood to be shed uh, for our sins but we can't or for our salvation but I will say we have parallels to this many times people have died to protect other people or to uh, release other people uh, I mean soldiers do it all the time uh, police do it a lot 
There are times when one person might sacrifice his life for a friend. And Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, than that he laid on his life for his friends. Uh, you know, actually, uh, in, in the prophets, God said that he, God, uh, uh, sacrificed the Egyptians, uh, you know, to rescue and ransom the Jews, or the Israelites, from captivity. So, I mean, there is such a thing as people dying to rescue somebody else. Now, uh, you know, Jesus, you know, died for us to save us. And this is not a case of somebody offering a human sacrifice. It's a case of somebody offering himself. You see, some people, especially atheists, I, I know you yourself have said that you, you don't believe that in Christianity. You believe that Christ is Satan, which is the most absurd nonsense I've ever heard. But you've said it before a couple times. But uh, atheists will sometimes say that um, that God was guilty of child abuse because he... He made his son come and die. And they don't understand that the way Jesus talked about it, the way that Christianity talks about it, uh, God didn't sacrifice his son. He sacrificed himself. God was in Christ, it says, reconciling the world to himself. It, the case of Christ is not just God finding a man and saying, let's, cruci let's uh, sacrifice this man. It's a case of God becoming a man so that he could sacrifice himself. And, uh, you know, if God says that this is what he had to do to rescue sinners, uh, it's not for you or me to say, well, that's, that's not okay. Uh, well, you know, it's true that no one was allowed to sacrifice another person that, that, that like, the, like the Mayas or the Aztecs did or whatever, you know, for, to their gods, uh, or like many pagans did to their gods. Moloch worshippers sacrificed humans. That was absolutely abomination. But it's never said to be an abomination for one person to give up his life for the sake of others, which includes including the shedding of his blood. Now, was his blood sacrificed for those people? We could say it that way. Yeah, we could. But that's not the same thing as one person offering another person as a sacrifice to some deity. That, that would be an abomination, and it was. It was practiced many times among the, the heathen. So, yeah, I think, I think you've seen it very differently, obviously. Let's talk to, uh, let's see, it's going to be Bill from Fullerton, California. Bill, welcome. Hi, Steve. Bill from Fullerton. Nice to talk to you again. Yeah. I have evening. a question on the entire book of Mark, Mark 13. Mm -hmm. um, I want to get your opinion on this. I've heard some say that it's somewhat predictive of the future, while others say that Jesus is purposely rehashing things like wars and rumors of wars that always happen to make a point. And that point might be that he's not going to tell the apostles the future, and that's not the point of the lesson. So what is your opinion on that? Well, I mean, some of the things he names are not were not specifically restricted to the future because earthquakes and famines and wars and rumors of wars have always existed, like you say. Though he mentions that in connection with something that he is predicting about the future, and it's kind of hard to miss it, because it says uh, in, in Mark 13:3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him, saying, "Tell us when will these things be? Now what things?" Well, he's just predicted something here. In verse two, he said that uh, about the temple in Jerusalem, "Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another." 
that shall not be thrown down. So he's, he's just uh, described the total leveling of the temple complex. And they ask, well, when will that be? Well, he does answer them before the whole chapter is over. He certainly does. When he says um, uh, in verse 30, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So he does predict a future thing. It would happen in their generation, but it was certainly the future. And we know when it happened. I mean, that's something we can look back on and say, oh, okay, we see the fulfillment of that because Jerusalem was destroyed in exactly the manner he said 40 years after he said it. So when he said this generation will not pass before it happens, he hit it right on the, right on the nose. And now, in, the, in, in answering their question, uh, he says some other things first that would happen before Jerusalem is destroyed. And he says in verse 7, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. Uh, I understand him to be saying, you know, I've just told you that Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed, but you may think the next time you hear about wars and rumors of wars in the area, in diverse places, that this is it. But don't think it is, necessarily. There will be lots of wars and rumors of wars that are not it. You know, there's, there's always wars and rumors of wars. And he says the same thing about earthquakes and famines and, uh, you know, things like that in diverse places in verse 8. And he said there would be false prophets. But he said uh, all these things uh, must take place, but the end is not yet. You know, so um, there are things that he mentions that were not specific references to unique events that would be in the future. Many of the things that he said are going to happen have always happened and still happen to this day. In fact, there's never been any time when they weren't happening. But he's saying don't mistake those <coughs> for the evidence that, that the Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. There's, these are things that will happen, but they are not the things that will herald the immediate destruction of Jerusalem. What he did say so would herald that. Go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, he's kind of telling them, in a sense, not to get distracted by certain items such as wars and earthquakes and, you know, just to properly focus. And by That's the way, what I believe. things that are going to happen, and they did. Yeah, there are things going to happen that, that will herald it, but th those are not the things, so don't let those, you know, don't let those cause you to be, uh, you know, like you say, distracted. In verse 14, he says, But when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, then let the reader understand, uh, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, etc., etc. So he says there is uh, a time when Jerusalem's end is drawing near, and you will do well to flee and get out of Jerusalem because of the horrible holocaust that's going to come upon it. And that's when you see the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke of. Now, that's a very Hebraic expression, abomination of desolation. Actually, the, the phrase in Daniel is uh, the, an abomination that causes desolation. And, uh, and he doesn't say what that is, although in Daniel 9, the impression is that it has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem and with the armies coming against it. Luke, who is giving the same uh, account as Mark is, you know, we're reading Mark 13. Well, Luke 21 is the parallel account, which gives the same sermon. And at the point in Luke 21, where you would expect to find when you see the abomination of desolation, as Mark and Matthew have it, Luke paraphrases it. He assumes his reader 
<clears throat> a Greek man named Theophilus would not be familiar with the Hebrew expression, abomination of desolation. So he just kind of tells them what it is. He just paraphrases Jesus. In verse 20, he says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is near. Then let those in Judea flee to the mountains and so forth. So the very same instructions that we find in Mark 13 and in Matthew 24, actually, about fleeing because you've seen this sign of its imminence uh, in Matthew and Mark, in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, uh, what, what they are to look for is what is called the abomination of desolation in those verses. And, of course, it's the same thing that Luke's talking about, but Luke paraphrases it, making it a little easier to understand. He said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is at hand. This is the abomination that's going to cause the desolation of the country. It's the Romans coming. And so when you see that, you know that it's near. It's at the doors. So that's uh, that's how I understand it. So he did he did talk about future things, but not everything he mentioned were distinctly for the future. I mean, there were things that the they'd be in the future, but they're also before and after and, you know, at all times, pretty much, many of the things. Okay, uh, we're going to talk next to, uh, let's see, it's Chris from Maine. Chris, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Oh, oh hi. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Uh, hi, Steve. Uh, thanks for the work you do. Great show. Um, I have a comment and then a question. Comment comment was on earlier you said there were uh, there were differences genetically between uh, monkeys and people. And uh, what, oh, I said apes, but go ahead. Yeah. Ape, yeah. Yes, ape monkeys, primates. Uh, what, yeah. I've, what, what, what a lot of times people don't consider is that there's billions of, of code. And so when you talk about a small percentage difference, you're talking about millions of differences in, in DNA code. Mm-hmm. And so really there's, it's not a it's not a small thing, you know. The, the reason we can't mate with primate with with apes is because you know we are very very different from them genetically. That's and, obvious. Uh, yes. Uh huh. You're right. A huge, profound. Yeah. So anyway, a lot of people don't think of that. I just thought I'd mention that. Um, sure. The question I had was more to do with uh, a, a kind of a pet subject of mine, which is a supernatural interface with humanity and, and history. And I'm just wondering what you think about that. Like, do you do you interpret the Bible and your and your general view of, of how to interpret it through the lens of God's hand in in the affairs of men throughout, or or right. how is it that you know? I'm just just wondering about that that question because it kind of seems to veer into like other topics. Uh, so anyway, just. Okay. Yeah. Well, unlike the atheist or the or the naturalist or the materialist, I I believe there are two realities that are existing parallel that we that we have to contend with. One is the physical, and one is the spiritual. Uh, the super the, the physical we might call the, the natural, if we wished, and the uh, the spiritual we might call the supernatural. But I believe mm-hmm. that those two realms both exist. In the realm of the supernatural, there is, of course, God and his providence and his interactions with men, even miracles sometimes. Uh, um, uh, There's also angels. There's also demons. And how many other things there may be in the supernatural realm, we don't really know. Um, But there is that realm, just like we don't know all the species of animals in the physical realm. We don't know everything that goes on in the spiritual either. But 
But what we need to know is that that realm exists, and over all of it, God is sovereign. Now, we also have to know that God, who inhabits that realm, made the physical realm for a purpose and has intentions for it. He has a plan for it. And uh, he has existed a lot longer than the world and the universe have. Uh, But uh, he made them in order to bring about something in the end. And he does reserve the right to superintend everything that happens and to intervene whenever it is to his liking to do so. Um, uh, and, And that being so, we have no reason to doubt that there would be times when God would uh, stick his finger into our pond and uh, move things around and and do things that we couldn't do and that no natural force could do that we know of. Uh, So, yeah, I believe that God does not... I was going to just say this, but but there are two different views about God's intervention uh, that I'm aware of. One of them being that God set things up to run by natural laws for the most part. And when he does a miracle, he's contravening those laws momentarily. And uh, because he is the lawgiver, he's also the king, and he can he can intervene in those laws and yeah. change them anytime he wants to for the moment. Um, but but the rest of the time, when he's not intervening, things are just running like a clock, you know, by the by the rules of motion and physics and things like that. And that's a, a realistic uh, notion. But there's another notion out there. This is held by some of the Calvinists I've known, not all. And that is that there aren't even such things as natural laws at all. But what we call natural (laughs) laws are just regularities of the way God does things most of the time. That God is making everything move. Every molecule, everything is being moved proactively by God himself. And uh, since, uh, you know, to make things not too totally chaotic or confusing, he, he generally does things in, in regular ways, and we can observe these regular ways. It makes it possible for us to interact with the physical world meaningfully. And, uh, and yet, uh, what, what we would call a miracle is just a, <clears throat> an instance of God not doing it at that moment the same way that he usually does it. So the, the question yeah. is whether God has consigned or delegated most of the mechanics of the universe to natural laws, or whether he's you know, micromanaging every atom or not, and, and a miracle would be seen somewhat differently in each case. It's, it's an interesting way to put it. It's perfect to think of it as both laws and, and an inter, interface. Uh, the, what I've just discovered as I came to Christ over time a few years back uh, was that I kept coming upon a supernatural interface with the famous people in history, and it almost didn't matter who. You know, you could look at Hannibal, and if you start to read history through this lens, you start to see that you reread Livy and you see that Hannibal is, was, is said to be guided by visions of a snake and an angel. And then the great historical question, why didn't Hannibal take Rome? And you, you realize the answer is because the super, his supernatural guides probably told him not to. And, and so this, this type of thing seems to be happening uh, among you know, people who are basically spirit worshipers, whether it's Baal, Hannibal, or, you know, it's, it seems like a, a constant theme throughout history. Caesar was also a, a, a temple priest of some kind, I believe. And, well, uh, and, and, and Hitler, <clears throat> Hitler is very interested in the supernatural, too, and the occult and all that. And, and we need to remember that, as I said, the supernatural realm uh, has both the, you know, God and his angels on one side, and we've got the devil and, and 
his angels or his demons or whatever on the dark side. And, um, and because, you know, at least on the view that God lets lots of things run and only intervenes when he feels the need to, uh, he allows people to align themselves with the devil. And, and the devil will sometimes give powers and give revelations to his servants. And, and uh, this may explain how some of these people come to power is that the devil, you know, uh, directs them in the, in the ways and gives them the power to, to become powerful. And yeah, I mean, I don't know, I don't know that we could say all or most of people who, who have ever been in power have had dealings with the occult. Some of the, some of the very important ones, uh, have definitely been fascinated with uh, the occult, with the demonic powers, or with, you know, pagan religions that are essentially the worship of demons, as the Bible says. So, yeah, the demonic <clears throat> is involved with our world, and so is God. And, you know, I mean, it's not, I mean, when we say there's a supernatural realm, we're not talking about the same thing as if we say, well, we think there's life in other galaxies, uh, because other galaxies don't interface with us. I mean, it's more like the spiritual realm is right here intermixed among us, so that um, all one needs is an interface you know, between the physical and the spiritual. And, and we might argue reasonably that human beings are that interface. You know, we don't don't have any reason to believe the animals have much contact with the supernatural realm, but the human beings who are made in the image of God and the image of animals, as we have. We're part of the physical creation. We're also part of, we've got an element of the supernatural that's, that's breathed into us, too, that we become the interface between God and his creation on one hand and between the devil and, and the creation on the other, usually for other people, not the same people. But people, human beings, seem to be in that unique position, I would say. Hey, I need to take another call. I, I appreciate your call, Chris. Um, we'll talk to, to uh, Linda in Detroit, Michigan. Linda, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hello, Steve. I uh, love your program. Thank you. I have two questions. Um, what do you think, um, is it acceptable to God to be cremated? I've uh, been told by a pastor that only heathens cremate. And the second question would be, um, through the year, giving to um, different charities. Do you think it's right in God's eyes to take that off your taxes at the end of the year if it's a gift from God? You know, to give to God. Mm-hmm. Well, um, uh, let me take that. Let me take that second point since it comes well, up less often than the Can I listen to you on the radio? Sure. Sure you can. Okay. Thank you so much. God bless you. All right. Sure. Well, I'll take them both. Uh, cremation. Is it true that only the pagans cremate? Well, maybe in biblical times it was more practiced among pagans than among the Jews. The Jews honored the physical body. Uh, they, they wanted to honor it in burial and so forth. This is their culture. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible that indicates that cremating is a wrong thing to do and that burial is necessary to do. But, yeah, the Jewish culture definitely wanted to show respect for their uh, ancestors and their, and their parents and so forth when they died. And they, they didn't see burning their bodies to be particularly a respectful way to dispose of them, so they didn't. But there's nothing in the Bible that says that cremation uh, is somehow necessarily uh, immoral or pagan. And, and it certainly isn't the case that only pagans cremate today. Lots of Christians do. So, 
Yeah, that the pastor said that I think is mistaken. He doesn't have any biblical basis for condemning it. Um, and the other question was, let me think. Uh, oh shoot, she hung up. Um, it's so uh, I'm so sorry. I, I at my age I can't think of I can't remember two things on a list. <laughs> Just ask my wife when she sends me shopping. Um, oh, about taxes. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Justin. Um, should we not? deduct tax uh, uh, take tax deductions on donations uh, you know before I paid taxes and I didn't think clearly about this I thought yeah I don't want to I don't want to deduct any uh, I wouldn't want to deduct anything I gave as a gift you know through through God or to the poor because I'm not just giving to get my money back but of course when I grew up and learned about taxes I I realized that wait a minute uh, they're not giving me my money back. They're just taking less of my money away. Uh, they, they don't return to you the money you gave to the poor. They simply don't. They, they subtract that amount from your income that they that they charge taxes on. Now, uh, you know, they, they apparently recognize you're giving to the poor as, uh, for the purpose of responsibility, uh, equivalent to giving to taxes. And I'd, I'd much rather give to the poor than to the government, frankly. Not that I'm not willing to pay the government for the services they provide, as long as they're good services, but the government usually charges for services that they've got that I never asked for and that God never appointed them to, to provide. And then they send us the bill in taxes. So I don't mind giving the government less money. It's not that they give me the money back that I give to the poor. They just take the amount that I gave into consideration and say, okay, we'll subtract that from the total of what we're going to tax you on. And that's a very different thing. So I, I don't think it's wrong to declare uh, those things uh, as ta tax deductions. I appreciate your call. Uh, you're listening to The Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, um, and we are listener-supported. If you'd like to help us out, you can write to The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California. 92593 or go to our website thenarrowpath.com Thanks for joining us. Let's talk again tomorrow.